Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Christ. Thank you for your promises and that you are a God who cannot lie. Father, I ask that you would today, by your Holy Spirit dwelling in your people, Lord, teach us, lead us and guide us through your word, illuminate your word, that it would mold us and shape us and renew our minds, that we would be a people to give glorious witness of your light and life in this dark and lifeless world. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we've covered verse 1, but I wanted to read verse 1 and 2 in context. When Paul writes about the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, that's the, the way the New King James translates it, when we read that, we should understand that it's describing what the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth looks like lived out. Your faith is not just something you're to hold and keep. Your faith was a gift given to you by God so that you could live it out and make it known. And Paul uses this phrase in verse 1, a full or, or the acknowledgement of the truth. And that means, it speaks of a full knowledge. A full knowledge of the truth is contained in the faith of God's elect. A full knowledge of the truth does not mean you know and understand all things. Because we certainly don't. In Christ, you experience the fullness of truth as it is revealed in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Christ does not mean you have all the knowledge of the truth you could possibly have, but it does mean that you have all the knowledge of the truth you could possibly need. When God reveals to you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you know everything, but it means you have everything you need to know. Christ is sufficient for all things. It also implies growing into an increasing knowledge of him. The faith and the knowledge of the truth accords with or brings to view godliness. Paul talks about this acknowledgement of the truth according to godliness, which accords to godliness. He's talking about our acknowledging the truth. Our knowledge of the truth means that our life is going to reveal and manifest godliness. 
as you grow in the knowledge of Christ and spiritual and intellectual comprehension of Him, God did give you a brain for a reason. And you're to use it. Your intellectual understanding of Jesus can't save you. That's only through a spiritual revelation that God gives you. But when God opens the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your understanding, and you have a revelation of Christ, you are to grow in that knowledge of Christ, that revelation of Christ. You're to actually exercise your brain to read God's word and to comprehend. And as you grow in that knowledge of Christ, that growth manifests itself through a godly lifestyle. It's made visible. It's brought into view in your life. Godliness is your obedience to God in the fear of the Lord. Your obedience is to be born out of the love of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it is the love of God that sustains us. This constitutes true piety. Godliness is piety. Piety is a word worth considering. Our word piety comes from the Latin word pietus, which is a noun representing the personification of certain virtues like unfailing duty, reverence, and devotion to deity, to kindred, to family, to friends, to country. I'm reading a book. It, well, it's a book I've had for a while. C.R. Wiley wrote a book called The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And in this book, he talks a lot about piety, more specifically, how we've lost the true definition and ideas that this virtue represents. When you consider its use from antiquity, you realize that we've lost much concerning this virtue or we've ignored it altogether. Pietus is not a word that originates with Christianity, but accurately describes what faith in Christ should look like lived out. A Roman statesman and scholar named Cicero defined pietus as the virtue, I quote, which admonishes us to do our duty to our country or our parents or other relations. The man who possessed pietus, Cicero writes, performed all his duty towards the deity and his fellow human beings fully and in every respect. Piety is not only respecting others, but is doing the right thing by God and by man. Thayer's definition of Bible words, Thayer's definition is to act piously or reverently towards God, one's country, magistrates, relations, and all to whom dutiful regard or reverence is due. This informs us how we are to live our lives as we walk out our faith in Christ. This is what piety is. Piety is rooted in these virtues of duty, reverence, and devotion. 
And if piety is performing all your duties towards God and fellow human beings, fully and in every respect as Cicero defined it, piety is ultimately walking by faith, holding God and others in view, even above yourself and your own affections as is necessary. Piety is dutiful, reverent devotion to God and others, even at the expense of yourself. In short, piety is godliness. The word translated godliness here in, first, in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, is the Greek word eusebeia. This word conveys piety. It describes this is the context of the word. Other words from the same root are translated devout or godly, along with godliness. And godliness like pietus or piety describes the same attributes and virtues of unfailing duty, loyalty, reverence, and faithful devotion to God kindred, and country. It reminds me of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles recorded for us in the scripture, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 is the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. And he tells the exiles to pray for the peace of the city that they're exiled to. Pray for its peace. Pray for its prosperity because in its peace and prosperity, you will also have peace and prosperity. This is piety. God, in other words, says this is your duty. Well, when I'm sending you out, judging you for your sin, and your judgment is 70 years in captivity, your piety, your duty, your loyalty, your devotion is to pray for the peace of the city you're in, to endure your hardship like a good soldier, knowing that God has made a promise that after that time of exile, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek after me with all your heart. It does us good to read the Bible in context and not just cherry-pick scriptures we can stick on our refrigerator and we lose the context of what they're really telling us. Godliness is honoring and performing all your duties toward God and your fellow human beings fully and in every respect. Simply put, godliness is loving God and your neighbor. Godliness is walking in the light as he is in the light. Godliness is walking just as Christ walked, doing the will of the Father. Godliness is living, holy, set-apart lives in the righteousness of Christ before God and before man. Godliness and piety are synonymous. In living godly lives, we have the hope of eternal life promised by God. In hope of eternal life, Paul writes, you have the hope of eternal life through redemption in Christ. The hope of eternal life comes from the sovereign grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Eternal life does not come by your works. You don't work your way to eternal life. It is the gift of God so that no 
man may boast. Eternal life in Christ is the work of God alone. Perseverance or persevering in his eternal life is also the work of God alone. God saved you. God keeps you. Salvation is not what you have that you might lose, like your keys or your phone. No, salvation is that God has you. Salvation possesses you. And God doesn't lose his possessions like we do. Assurance of eternal life in Christ is according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, as we walk in accordance with godliness, we will always hold the hope and the assurance of eternal life which God promised. You can walk assured that God will persevere you in the faith as you walk in a manner that gives you, uh, that gives you assurance. In the faith. You don't doubt your salvation when you're living a godly, righteous life and obeying God. You question your salvation when you're not. So what's the solution? If you're struggling with the assurance of your faith, keep obeying God. Keep living a righteous life. And you'll never struggle with assurance of faith. Listen to the words of the Apostle John concerning our hope of eternal life. First John Chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He didn't say that you may hope, that you can be pretty sure. He said that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. How will you know that you have eternal life? Continue to believe. And you'll never question. God wants you to know that you have eternal life if you believe in the name of the Son of God. And that assurance will continue as you continue to trust in His name. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. As I told the children, I'll tell you, God cannot lie. The hope of eternal life is promised by God, who cannot lie. Remember, eternal life is the gift of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are saved by grace, not by works. We now work because we are saved. And we have the faith of the elect and the knowledge of the truth. That's where our work comes from. To live according to godliness is to obey all that Christ commands and do the works God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God cannot lie. God began a good work in you, and he promises to complete it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is hope. Paul is writing here to, to Titus about the hope of eternal life. This is hope. God who cannot lie promised eternal life before time began to all who have been sovereignly saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the hope given to those with the faith of God's elect who acknowledge the truth through a life of godliness walked out in Christ. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. If I were to ask the question, when did you receive your salvation? If I just did a man on the street interview, we would more than likely get very many different answers. The biblical answer to that question is before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It goes on and says, having predestined us to adoption as sons. In that sense, you were given salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world. That might be kind of hard to wrap your mind around because you might say, well, well, wait a minute, I I wasn't there to choose Jesus. Exactly right. Because you didn't choose Jesus, Jesus chose you. That's why he did it before the foundation of the world, so you could never take credit for it. You being chosen in him had nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God and his preordained plan of salvation for the world. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God prepared good works for us in Christ beforehand. That means before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Faith works. James talks about this. He talks about dead faith. Faith is not meant to be dead. Faith works. Living, working, active faith in the knowledge of the truth in accord with godliness is the faith of God's elect. In this is our hope and promise of eternal life with assurance. Your hope is sure in Christ. And don't ever doubt that. The hope of eternal life you have in Christ, which God promised before time began is a sure hope. Paul reminds us of a truth that we must not forget, that God cannot lie. The truth that the God who cannot lie promised eternal life to his elect ones before time began. Sometimes people ask me, well, how do I know I'm one of those? And my Answer is a question, do you love God? Well, yes, I love God. You love Jesus Christ? Yes, I love Jesus Christ. 
Well, the Bible says the only way that you can love God, that you can love Jesus Christ, is for God to love you first. The only way your heart can have any, any desire for God, any love for God, any affection for God, is that God, by his Holy Spirit, poured his love into your heart. And God doesn't pour his love into people's hearts who are dead in their sin. Well, he, do, he does and makes them alive. But what I'm saying is people who are still dead in their sin, who have no desire for God, who don't seek after God, for there is none good, there is none who seeks after God. No, not one is good. No, not one seeks after God. Well, how did I come to seek after God? How did I come? How did you come to love God and desire God? It's because God poured his love into your heart. So keep loving Jesus and if you love him, keep his commandments. Keep obeying Jesus. And, and you can have the assurance of his promise of eternal life. This sure hope given to us by God who cannot lie does not make us presumptuous as one may suppose. In fact, it does just the opposite. It humbles us under his mighty hand of power, under his majesty and utter holiness. When we are given a revelation of Christ, just like Isaiah, when he saw God high and lifted up in the train filled the temple, he fell down as one dead. Because he saw himself in reality in relation to God. He says, I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips. When we have a revelation of Christ, when we are able to see God, when we're given that revelation, it, it shows us who we are, that God has given to us a grace we did not deserve. And he's given to us a mercy that means we will never receive what we truly deserve, which is his wrath. So it doesn't make us presumptuous. If it does, then you don't really know God's grace. You've not been changed. You've not been transformed. You don't have a heart because a heart, a new heart that God gives to us can never be presumptuous about anything concerning our salvation. But it does humble us. And it does give us assurance, which is different than presumption. God wants you to have the assurance of your salvation. He just doesn't want you to be presumptuous. Because presumption has an air of pride and arrogance, which is sinful. Assurance should carry with it a humility that knows that I have come under the power Surrendered to a holy God who has imputed to me righteousness. Not because I deserve it, but because he chose me in him before the foundation of the world. If we have the faith of God's elect and a knowledge of his truth, we recognize the grace given to us that we did not deserve. If you profess to trust in Christ then live 
live out, walk out that profession. You live in a nation that is abounding with the word of God. It is accessible to all who will seek it and read it. Your good intentions can never save you. Only Jesus can save you. Ignorance of what God's word teaches will not be an excuse on the day of judgment. If you've lived any length of time, you probably all experienced this. When the officer walks to your window and says, may I see your license, sir? Uh, officer, what was I doing? You were speeding. You were going 20 miles over the speed limit. Oh, gee, I didn't know that uh, the speed limit was 20 miles less than what I was going. And that officer doesn't have to say it. But we hand you the ticket and it says, thank you very much. Have a great day. What he just told you is ignorance is no excuse. <laughs> and on the day of judgment, ignorance will not be an excuse that God will tolerate because man is not ignorant. The Bible teaches this. Just as man's so-called goodness will not earn him a place in heaven. Heaven cannot be earned. It is only given as God's free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And God wants you to have the hope of eternal life with assurance. And your assurance comes only by grace through faith in Jesus. And if you love him, then obey his word. And you cannot obey his word if you do not read and spend time in his word. If you don't know his word, you can't obey it. What is it you will tell God was so valuable that it kept you from spending time in his word? What is that? What is that you will tell God was so valuable that it kept you from spending time in his word? Just remember, ignorance is never an excuse. Man knows the truth, but instead suppresses it in unrighteousness. Paul warns of this in his letter to the Romans. It's worth reading these verses from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Nothing's excluded there. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man is without excuse. You and I are without excuse. So what is your excuse? Asking this uncomfortable question now, trust me, is much better than you answering God in the day of judgment. We must eliminate our excuses, for they are meaningless. 
love him, obey him, glorify him. Do that and you will be truly blessed, not just on earth, but for all eternity as you experience his promise of eternal life with full assurance. Raising up children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord is a command that God gives to parents. The church plays an important part in that command to parents. For his church is God's covenant community. And as the church, we are meant to walk and to work and to pray together for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are commanded to prepare the generations to walk faithfully in godliness, in piety, preparing them to dutifully, loyally, and with courage devote themselves to Christ and His church. We are called to His kingdom work to see the knowledge of the glory of God fill this earth. And how long are we to do this? And the answer is even until the day of Jesus Christ. There is no time to waste. We need to get busy if we're not already. And we do this today as we baptize a precious life into the covenant and into this covenant body. This is how we train them up in the covenant. This is how we disciple them in Christ and how we prepare them to battle and to conquer courageously and with joy into the future from generation to generation for the glory of God. If you wait, till the, if you wait until they're old enough to make their own decision about which God they're going to worship, they've already made their decision. If you didn't disciple them, parents, then the world has already discipled them. And by the time you get in the game, it's going to be way too late. And this is why consistently the scripture commands parents from the time that baby is born, I would say even before, you begin the process of training them up, of discipling them. And how are you going to do that, mom and dad, if you yourself are not a disciple? Every parent wants their children to be a faithful follower of God. Well, guess what, mom and dad? That means you need to be a faithful follower of God because your children aren't going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. Today, it is my privilege to welcome into the covenant through baptism Lydia Rose Hinchman. So we're going to get ready. We're going to baptize Lydia. And then after we baptize Lydia, we're going to all come to the table together. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask... Uh, Zach and Madison to bring Lydia up. But I want to read some scripture to you as we get ready to perform this baptism. We, we baptize young and old because we believe that Christ gave this sacrament as a sign and a seal of the new covenant. 
Baptism is what God commands us to do. Go baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus commanded his disciples. Jesus saves, not baptism. But we baptize children into the covenant and we raise them up in the covenant, teaching them about the one who does save so that if parents do their, their, their job properly, a child will never know a time in their life where they did not trust in Jesus. I came to faith in Christ when I was 23 years old. I remember that moment very well. I remember my baptism. And the point is not that a child remembers their baptism. The point is that child knows their baptism and lives according to their baptism. Because it's not remembering your baptism that matters. It's knowing Jesus that matters. It's knowing what your baptism represents, what you were baptized into. And today we're going to baptize Lydia Rose into the covenant, into Christ. It is an acknowledgement of God's grace at work in the life of this child within the care of her father and her mother and extended family and under the nurture of this community of faith. It points forward to her personal response to God's grace when she exercises conscious, saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Psalms teach us much about the covenant. Psalm 103, 17 and 18 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Psalm 22, 9 and 10, David cried, You are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. In Psalm 25, David cries out to the Lord teach, to teach him his ways. And he says, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Zach and Madison have literally made a disciple. And now they are baptizing her and committing to obey God's word to train her up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord and teach her to obey all that Christ has commanded. Let's pray and ask that God would honor his name here today in this covenant baptism, that he would pour out his kindness upon us and that he would show us his covenant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is our prayer that you would show us your covenant. With the psalmist, I declare, from you comes our praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
This time has come and is being fulfilled because of the work of the cross and the resurrection of our Messiah. I ask, Father, that you would honor your name here now. You are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Zach and Madison, bring Lydia Rose up here, if you would, please. So I'm going to charge Zach and Madison with their covenant vows as parents. And then I'm going to charge you as the congregation concerning your covenant vows as this child in this family's covenant community. And then we're going to charge this infant together. Zach and Madison, do you acknowledge that Lydia needs the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you trust in God's covenant promises on behalf of Lydia? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation just as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate Lydia Rose to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy faith, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. On the basis of your Faith expressed here, do you resolve by the grace of God not only to bring her up as your natural daughter, but also from this day forward to consider her as your sister in the Lord, as a joint heir of all God's covenant blessings? Congregation, you'll respond with a hearty amen. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibilities as a covenant community in assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? If so, amen. 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 Now we get to baptize Lydia. So I'm going to bring this right over here. Miss Lydia, how are you doing? How are you doing, little one? Well, Miss Lydia Rose Hinchman, on the basis of our profession of covenant faith, I baptize Lydia Rose Hinchman into Jesus Christ and the covenant in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wow, you did. Phenomenal. And now may the blessings 
of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and dwell in your heart forever and ever. Amen. Great job. Great job. Now, Lydia Rose is now received into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, the people of this congregation, in receiving this little one, promise with God's help to be her people to the end, that she may faithfully walk in Christ all her days and come at last to Christ's eternal kingdom. Please stand. Jesus said, whoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Let us receive Lydia Rose with this charge. We'll all recite this together to her. Little child, for you, Jesus Christ, came to this earth, struggled and suffered. For your sake, he crossed Gethsemane and went through the darkness of Calvary. For your sake, he cried, it is finished. For your sake, he died. And for your sake, he came death. Indeed, for your sake, little child, and you still know nothing of it. And thus the word of the apostle is confirmed. We love God, for he first first. Amen. Let's all stand. We are in a spiritual battle, in case you didn't know it. The Bible clearly teaches us this, but we lose sight of that and we become really blind to it as we are distracted with life. And that's exactly what the world, that's exactly what the enemy wants us to be, is distracted. This spiritual battle rages all around us, whether we know it or not. The casualties and the collateral damage can be clearly seen all around us as well. The most important and effective way we engage in battle and wage this spiritual warfare is to consistently and courageously walk out our faith joyfully, dutifully, reverently, and fully devoted every day in everything we do. It is living according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. We're in a battle. We're in a war. But we have already been promised. And the victory has already been won. And so we wage our warfare joyfully knowing that we win. We live out our time of visitation on this earth joyfully, dutifully, faithfully, in godliness, and piety, knowing that God has promised and he cannot lie. So church, rejoice. Be of good cheer. Jesus is Lord. He's the king. He wins. We are his 
people. And we have every reason to rejoice in that. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ go with you. You enter the mission field when you leave this place. Go joyfully, go dutifully, go wage your warfare in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.